Section 11 of The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Honesty. Honesty consists not in never stealing, but in knowing where to stop in stealing and how to make good use of what one does steal. It is only great proprietors who can steal well and wisely. A good stealer, a good user of what he takes, is ipso facto a good inventor. Two men can invent after a fashion to one who knows how to make the best use of what has been done already. Musical Criticism I went to the Bach Choir concert and heard Mozart's Requiem. I did not rise warmly to it. Then I heard an extract from Parsifal, which I disliked very much. If Bach wriggles, Wagner writhes. Yet next morning in the Times I saw this able, heartless failure, compact of gnosis as much as anyone pleases, but without one spark of either true pathos or true humour, called the crowning achievement of dramatic music. The writer continues, to the unintelligent, music of this order does not appeal, which only means, I am intelligent, and you had better think as I tell you. I am glad that such people should call Handel a thieving plagiarist. On borrowing in music. In books, it is easy to make mention of the forgotten dead to whom we are indebted, and to acknowledge an obligation at the same time and place that we incur it. The more original a writer is, the more pleasure will he take in calling attention to the forgotten work of those who have gone before him. The conventions of painting and music, on the other hand, while they admit of borrowing no less freely than literature does, do not admit of acknowledgement. It is impossible to interrupt a piece of music or paint some words upon a picture to explain that the composer or painter was at such and such a point indebted to such and such a source for his inspiration. But it is not less impossible to avoid occasionally borrowing, or rather taking, for there is no need of euphemism from earlier work. Where then is the line to be drawn between lawful and unlawful adoption of what has been done by others? This question is such a nice one that there are almost as many opinions upon it as there are painters and musicians. To leave painting on one side, if a musician wants some forgotten passage in an earlier writer, is he, knowing where this sleeping beauty lies, to let it sleep on, unknown and unenjoyed? Or shall he not rather wake it and take it, as likely enough the earlier master did before him, with or without modification? It may be said this should be done by republishing the original work with its composer's name, giving him his due laurels. So it should, if the work will bear it. But more commonly, times will have so changed that it will not. A composer may want a bar or bar and a half out of, say, a dozen pages. He may not want even this much without more or less modification. Is he to be told that he must republish the ten or dozen original pages within which the passage he wants lies buried? as the only righteous way of giving it new life? 
no one should be allowed such dog in the manger like ownership in beauty that because it has once been revealed to him therefore none forever after shall enjoy it unless he be their cicerone if this rule was sanctioned he who first produced anything beautiful would sign its death warrant for an earlier or later date or at best would tether that which should forthwith begin putting girdles round the world beauty lives not for the self-glorification of the priests of any art but for the enjoyment of priests and laity alike he is the best art priest who brings most beauty most home to the hearts of most men if anyone tells an artist that part of what he has brought home is not his but another's yea let him take all should be his answer he should know no self in the matter he is a fisher of men's hearts from love of winning them and baits his hook with what will best take them without much heed where he gets it from he can gain nothing by offering people what they know or ought to know already he will not therefore take from the living or lately dead for the same reason he will instinctively avoid anything with which his hearers will be familiar except as recognised common form but beyond these limits he should take freely even as he hopes to be one day taken from true there is a hidden mocking spirit in things which ensures that he alone can take well who can also make well but it is no less true that he alone makes well who takes well a man must command all the resources of his art and of these none is greater than knowledge of what has been done by his predecessors what i wonder may he take from these how may he build upon them and grow out of them if he is to make it his chief business to steer clear of them a safer canon is that the development of a musician should be like that of a fugue or first movement in which the subject having been enounced it is essential that thenceforward everything shall be both new and old at one and the same time new but not too new old but not too old indeed no musician can be original in respect of any large percentage of his work for independently of his turning to his own use the past labour involved in musical notation which he makes his own as of right without more thanks to those who thought it out than we give to him who invented wheels when we hire a cab independently of this it is surprising how large a part even of the most original music consists of common form scale passages and closes mutatis mutandis the same holds good with even the most original book or picture these passages or forms are as light and air common to all of us but the principle having been once admitted that some part of a man's work cannot be original not that is to say if he has descended with only a reasonable amount of modification where is the line to be drawn where does common form begin and end the answer is that it is not mere familiarity that should forbid borrowing but familiarity with the passages associated with special surroundings if certain musical progressions are already associated with many different sets of antecedents and consequence they have no special association 
except in so far as they may be connected with a school or epoch. No one, therefore, is offended at finding them associated with one set the more. Familiarity beyond a certain point ceases to be familiarity, or at any rate ceases to be open to the objections that lie against that which, though familiar, is still not familiar as common form. Those, on the other hand, who hold that a musician should never knowingly borrow, will doubtless say that common form passages are an obvious and notorious exception to their rule, and the one the limits of which are easily recognised in practice, however hard it may be to define them neatly on paper. It is not suggested that when a musician wants to compose an air or chorus, he is to cast about for some little-known similar piece and lay it under contribution. This is not to spring from the loins of living ancestors, but to batten on dead men's bones. He who takes thus will ere long lose even what little power to take he may ever have had. On the other hand, there is no enjoyable work in any art which is not easily recognised as the affiliated outcome of something that has gone before it. This is more especially true of music, whose grammar and stock in trade are so much simpler than those of any other art. He who loves music will know what the best men have done, and hence will have numberless passages from older writers floating at all times in his mind, like germs in the air, ready to hook themselves onto anything of an associated character. Some of these he will reject at once, as already too strongly wedded to associations of their own. Some are tried, and found not so suitable as was thought. Some one, however, will probably soon assert itself as either suitable, or easily altered so as to become exactly what is wanted. If indeed it is the right passage in the right man's mind, it will have modified itself unbidden already. How then, let me ask again, is the musician to comport himself towards those uninvited guests of his thoughts? Is he to give them shelter, cherish them and be thankful? Or is he to shake them rudely off, bid them be gone, and go out of his way so as not to fall in with them again? Can there be a doubt what the answer to this question should be? As it is fatal deliberately to steer on to the work of other composers, so it is no less fatal deliberately to steer clear of it. Music, to be of any value, must be a man's freest and most instinctive expression. Instinct, in the case of all the greatest artists, whatever their art may be, bids them attach themselves to and grow out of those predecessors who are most congenial to them. Beethoven grew out of Mozart and Haydn, adding a leaven which in the end leavened the whole lump, but in the outset adding little. Mozart grew out of Haydn, in the outset adding little. Haydn grew out of Domenico Scarlatti and Emmanuel Bach, adding in the outset little. These men grew out of John Sebastian Bach, for much as both of them admired Handel, I cannot see that they allowed his music to influence theirs. Handel, even in his own lifetime, was more or less of a survival and protest. 
he saw the rocks under which music was drifting and steered his own good ship wide of them as for his musical parentage he grew out of the early italians and out of purcell the more original a composer is the more certain he is to have made himself a strong base of operations in the works of earlier men striking his roots deep into them so that he as it were gets inside them and lives in them and they in him and he in them then this firm foothold having been obtained he sallies forth as opportunity directs with the result that his works will reflect at once the experiences of his own musical life and those of musical progenitors to whom a loving instinct has more particularly attached him the fact that his work is deeply imbued with their ideas and little ways is not due to his deliberately taking from them he makes their ways his own as children model themselves upon those older persons who are kind to them he loves them because he feels they felt as he does and looked on men and things much as he looks upon them himself he is an outgrowth in the same direction as that in which they grew he is their son bound by every law of hereditary to be no less them than himself the manner therefore which came most naturally to them will be the one which comes also most naturally to him as being their descendant nevertheless no matter how strong a family likeness may be and it is sometimes as between handel and his forerunners startlingly close two men of different generations will never be so much alike that the work of each will not have a character of its own unless indeed the one is masquerading as the other which is not tolerable except on rare occasions and on a very small scale no matter how like his father a man may be we can always tell the two apart but this once given so that he has a clear life of his own then a strong family likeness to someone else is no more to be regretted or concealed if it exists than to be affected if it does not it is on these terms alone that attractive music can be written and it is a musician's business to write attractive music he is as it were tenant for life of the estate of and trustee for that school to which he belongs normally that school will be the one which has obtained the firmest hold upon his own countrymen an englishman cannot successfully write like a german or a hungarian nor is it desirable that he should try if by way of variety we want german or hungarian music we shall get a more genuine article by going direct to german or hungarian composers for the most part however the soundest englishmen will be stay-at-homes in spite of their being much given to summer flings upon the continent whether as writers therefore or as listeners englishmen should stick chiefly to purcell handel and sir arthur sullivan true handel was not an englishman by birth but no one was ever more thoroughly english in respect of all the best and most distinguishing features of englishmen as a young man though italy and germany were open to him he adopted the country of purcell feeling it doubtless to be as far as he was concerned more saxon than saxony itself he chose england 
nor can there be a doubt that he chose it, because he believed it to be the country in which his music had the best chance of being appreciated. And what does this involve, if not that England, take it all round, is the most musically-minded country in the world? That this is so, that it has produced the finest music the world has known, and is therefore the finest school of music in the world, cannot be reasonably disputed. To the born musician, it is hardly necessary to say neither the foregoing remarks nor any others about music, except those that may be found in every textbook, can be of the smallest use. Handel knew this, and no man has ever said less about his art or did more in it. There are some semi-apocryphal rules for tuning the harpsichord that pretend with what truth I know not to hail from him, but here his theoretical contributions to music begin and end. The rules begin, quote, In this chord, the tonic major triad, tune the fifth pretty flat and the third considerably too sharp. Unquote. There is an absence of fuss about these words which suggests Handel himself. The written and spoken words of great painters or musicians who can talk or write is seldom lasting. Artists are a dumb, inarticulate folk whose speech is in their hands, not in their tongues. They look at us like seals, but cannot talk to us. To the musician, therefore, what has been said above is useless, if not worse. Its object would have been attained if it aids the uncreative reader to criticise what he hears with more intelligence. Music So far as I can see, this is the least stable of the arts. From the earliest records we learn that there were musicians, and people seem to have been just as fond of music as we are ourselves. But whereas we find the old sculpture, painting what there is of it, and literature to have been in all essentials like our own. And not only this, but whereas we find them essentially the same in existing nations in Europe, Asia, Africa and America, this is not so as regards music, either looking to antiquity or to the various existing nations. I believe we should find old Greek and Roman music as hideous as we do Persian and Japanese, or as Persians and Japanese find our own. I believe, therefore, that the charm of music rests on a more unreasoning basis and is more dependent on what we are accustomed to than the pleasure given by the other arts. We now find all the ecclesiastical modes, except the Ionian and the Aeolian, unsatisfactory, indeed almost intolerable. But I question whether, if we were as much in the habit of using the Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian and Mixolydian modes, as we are abusing the later Aeolian mode, the minor scale, we should not find these just as satisfactory. Is it not possible that our indisputable preference for the Ionian mode, the major scale, is simply the result of its being the one to which we are most accustomed? If another mode were to become habitual, might not this scale or mode become first a kind of supplementary moon-like mode, as the Aeolian now is, and finally might it not become intolerable to us. Happily, 
It will last my time as it is. Discords Formerly all discords were prepared, and Monteverdi's innovation of taking the dominant seventh unprepared was held to be cataclysmic. But in modern music almost any conceivable discord may be taken unprepared. We have grown so used to this now that we think nothing of it. Still, whenever it can be done without sacrificing something more important, I think even a dominant seventh is better prepared. It is only the preparation, however, of discords which is now less rigorously insisted on. Their resolution, generally by the climbing down of the offending note, is as necessary as ever if the music is to flow on smoothly. This holds good exactly in our daily life. If a discord has to be introduced, it is better to prepare it as a concord, take it on a strong beat and resolve it downwards on a weak one. The preparation, being often difficult or impossible, may be dispensed with, but the resolution is still de rigueur. Anachronism. It has been said Thou shalt not masquerade in costumes not of thine own period. But the history of art is the history of revivals. Musical criticism, so far as I can see, is the least intelligent of the criticisms on this score. Unless a man writes in the exotic style of Brahms, Wagner, Dvorak, and I know not what other Slav, Czech, Teuton or Hebrew, the critics are sure to accuse him of being an anachronism. The only man in England who is permitted to write in a style which is in the main of home growth is the Irish Jew, Sir Arthur Sullivan. If we may go to a foreign style, why may we not go to one of an earlier period? But surely we may do whatever we like, and the better we like it, the better we shall do it. The great thing is to make sure that we like the style we choose better than we like any other, and that we engraft on it whatever we hear that we think will be a good addition, and depart from it whenever we dislike it. If a man does this, he may write in the style of the year one, and he will be no anachronism. The musical critics may call him one, but they cannot make him one. Chapters in Music The analogy between literature painting and music, so close in so many respects, suggests that the modern custom of making a whole scene, act or even drama into a single unbroken movement without subdivision is like making a book without chapters or a picture like Bernardine Luini's great Lugano fresco in which a long subject is treated within the compass of a single piece. Better advised, as it seems to me, Gaudenzio Ferrari broke up a space of the same shape and size at Varallo into many compartments, each more or less complete in itself, grouped round the central scene. The subdivision of books into chapters, each with a more or less emphatic full close in its own key, is found to be a help as giving the attention halting places by the way. Everything that is worth attending to fatigues as well as delights, 
much as the climbing of a mountain does so. Chapters and short pieces give rests, during which the attention gathers renewed strength and attacks with fresh ardour a new stretch of the ascent. Each bar is, as it were, a step cut in ice, and one does not see if set pieces are objected to, why phrases and bars should not be attacked next. At the Opera Jones and I went last Friday to Don Giovanni, Mr. Kemp putting us in free. It bored us both, and we like Narcissus better. We admit the beauty of many of the beginnings of the airs, but this beauty is not maintained. In every case the air tails off into something that is much too near being tiresome. The plot, of course, is stupid to a degree, but plot has very little to do with it. What can be more uninteresting than the plot of many of Handel's oratorios? We both believe the scheme of Italian opera to be a bad one. We think that music should never be combined with acting, to a greater extent than is done, we will say, in the Mikado. That the oratorio form is far more satisfactory than opera, and we agreed that we had neither of us ever yet been to an opera, I mean a grand opera, without being bored by it. I'm not sorry to remember that Handel never abandoned oratorio once he had fairly taken to it. At a Philharmonic Concert we went last night to the Philharmonic and sat in the Schilling Orchestra just behind the drums so that we could see and hear what each instrument was doing. The concert began with Mozart's G minor symphony. We liked this fairly well, especially the last movement, but we found all the movements too long. And speaking for myself, if I had a tame orchestra for which I might write programmes, I should probably put it down once or twice again, not from any spontaneous wish to hear more of it, but as a matter of duty, that I might judge it with fuller comprehension. Still, if each movement had been half as long, I should probably have felt cordially enough towards it, except, of course, that in so far as that the spirit of the music is alien to that of the early Italian school, with which alone I am in genuine sympathy, and of which Handel is the climax. Then came a terribly long-winded recitative by Beethoven, and an air with a good deal of che farò in it. I do not mind this, and if it had been che farò absolutely, I should, I dare say, have liked it better. I never want to hear it again, and my orchestra should never play it. Beethoven's Concerto for Violin and Orchestra, Op. 61, which followed, was longer and more tedious still. I have not a single good word for it. If the subject of the last movement was the tune of one of Arthur Roberts' comic songs, or of any musical song, it would do very nicely, and I dare say we should often hum it. I do not mean at the opening of the movement, but about halfway through, where the character is just like that of a common music-hall song, and so far, good. Part two opened with a suite in F major for orchestra, opus 39, by Moschkovsky. This was much more clear and in every way interesting than the Beethoven, 
every now and then there were passages that were pleasing not to say more jones liked it better than i did still one could not feel that any of the movements were the mere drivelling show-stuff of which the concerto had been full but it like everything else done at these concerts is too long cut down one half it would have been all right and we should have liked to hear it twice as it was all we could say was that it was much better than we had expected i did not like the look of the young man who wrote it and who also conducted he had long yellowish hair and kept tossing his head to fling it back onto his shoulders instead of keeping it short as jones and i keep ours then came schubert's erlkönig which i dare say is very fine but with which i have absolutely nothing in common and finally there was a tiresome characteristic overture by berlioz which if jones could by any possibility have written anything so dreary i should certainly have begged him not to publish the general impression left upon me by the concert is that all the movements were too long and that no matter how clever the development may be it spoils even the most pleasing and interesting subject if there is too much of it handel knew when to stop and when he meant stopping he stopped much as a horse stops with little if any peroration who can doubt that he kept his movement short because he knew that the worst music within a reasonable compass is better than the best which is made tiresome by being spun out unduly i know only one concerted piece of handles which i think too long i mean the overture to saul but i have no doubt that if i were to try to cut it down i should find some excellent reason that had made handel decide on keeping it as it is at the wind concerts there have been some interesting wind concerts lately i say interesting because they brought home to us the unsatisfactory character of wind unsupported by strings i rather pleased jones by saying that the oboe was the clarionet with a cold in its head and the bassoon the same with a cold on its chest at a handle festival one the large sweeps of sound floated over the orchestra like the wind playing upon a hillside covered with young heather and i sat and wondered which of the alpine passes handel crossed when he went into italy what time of year was it what kind of weather did he have were the spring flowers out did he walk the greater part of the way as we do now and what did he hear for he must sometimes have heard music inside him and that too is much above what he has written down as what he has written down is above all other music no man can catch all or always the best of what is put for a moment or two within his reach handel took as much and as near the best doubtless as mortal man can take but he must have had moments and glimpses which were given to him alone in which he could tell no man two i saw the world a great orchestra filled with angels whose instruments were of gold and i saw the organ on the top of the axis round which all should turn 
but nothing turned and nothing moved and the angels stirred not and all was still as a stone and i was myself also like the rest as still as a stone then i saw some huge cloud-like forms nearing and behold it was the lord bringing two of his children by the hand ah oh, papa said one isn't it pretty yes my dear said the lord and if you drop a penny into the box the figures will work then i saw that what i had taken for the keyboard of the organ was no keyboard but only a slit and one of the little lords dropped a plaque of metal into it and then the angels played and the will turned round and the organ made a noise and the people began killing one another and the two little lords clapped their hands and were delighted handel and dickens they buried dickens in the very next grave cheek by jowl with handel it does not matter but it pained me to think that people who could do this could become deans of westminster end of section 11